Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Depression is a common and disabling disorder in all stages of life, but in the elderly it appears to be both a mood disorder and what is key here, it is much more likely to also stem from possible medical, cognitive, social, and other situations as well. We call these comorbid conditions, and therefore depression is sometimes considered as if it is coming from transdisciplinary origins. We have to understand the impact of each one of these variables if we want to make a proper intervention. The statistics compel us to take a closer look. In the United States, there are now about 40 million people over 65 years of age. By the year 2050, that will double. Dan Blazer is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University Medical Center in North Carolina. Dr. Blazer, thank you so much for being with us. It's very good to be with you. Though we always have to consider the usual standard possible biological bases of a depression, not every depression requires an antidepressant. So we have two goals here today. Let's start by talking about the growing knowledge of the biological risk for depression in the elderly, and then let's move on to the other variables or the other origins of late-life depression. So let's begin. What are we learning about the biological aspects of depression? Well, this is actually a very exciting area for psychiatrists who work in this area because we have obviously many different factors that may contribute to the biological origins of depression, but what we are learning in late life compared to earlier stages of the life cycle is that structural changes in the brain, especially in the subcortical regions of the brain, appear to be strongly associated with depression in late life. We are just learning now some of the places within the brain, the actual locations of these structural abnormalities which may lead to depression in late life and with the very sophisticated methods we now have of imaging the brain that has become a very exciting area of research. What we believe is happening is that elderly individuals are increasingly at risk for developing, and this is not everyone, but quite a few in fact, small strokes. And these very small strokes or infarcts can affect areas subcortically that don't necessarily lead to what we typically think of as a stroke, such as a paralysis of a limb or perhaps problems with speech, but instead the problems arise in mood. And that mood problem may or may not be associated with memory problems. So we're really coning down at the present time on a better understanding of sort of the neurobiological substrates of late-life depression and of interest also trying to sort this out and being able to distinguish it from and seeing what overlaps there might be as well between these types of changes and the vascular changes that lead to some of the demanding disorders in late life. So is this what they sometimes refer to as vascular depression? Yes. It is what is called vascular depression, and that's a very broad term that's been around now for over 10 years. But we're learning that there are some very specific areas of the brain that seem to be affected by this, and we're trying to work out now how those specific areas might be uniquely at risk and how we actually might be able to identify these perhaps even before individuals begin to develop a more severe depressive episode. Is there any new data about genetic factors that are at play in developing a late, a late life depression? Well, clearly people in late life have a genetic predisposition to developing depression as they do throughout the, the life cycle. I think what I would say that might be a good summary statement is that individuals in late life, if they've not had an early onset depression, are less likely to have a depression that's driven primarily by genetic factors, such as we might especially see in individuals who have bipolar disorder earlier in life. 
However, if you look at population studies of just depressive mood, not necessarily reaching the threshold of major depression, what we know is that individuals certainly have a genetic predisposition. There's a a genetic predisposition in some to developing depression, and that does appear in depressive symptom scores. One of the things that, to follow up on the multitude of variables here, one of the things that every medical student learns early on is to look at all the other medical situations, conditions, treatments, and so on that are at play when someone reports a depression. This seems to be such a constant issue, and yet we need to remind ourselves of it. That could not be said any better. That is exactly right. As much as we look for kind of basic findings in the brain, a basic neuropathology of depression, very often depression in late life is associated with not only comorbid physical illnesses, and these can be illnesses such as cardiovascular disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cancers, etc., but also we have to be concerned, as I alluded to before, with comorbid neurological disorders, especially stroke and especially some of the demeaning disorders. I spoke to a gentleman who gave us a very good talk about the proper workup of dementia, and he said that we are at fault because we don't look at syphilis and other uh, diseases that some of the folks from many, many years ago may still have the residuals of. That's very true, but it's probably much more likely that individuals will have a vascular dementia, an Alzheimer's disease, or perhaps a stroke, and the stroke maybe is resolving itself relatively well, but the mood disorder that accompanies the stroke can be quite disabling. Absolutely. I want to go, though, to some of the other material that you discussed in a recent article because I found it very fascinating. You talked about psychological origins, social origins, spiritual origins, and in the area of the psychological origins, you talked about cognitive distortions. Would you explain what a cognitive distortion is, please? Well, this is certainly not limited to late life and an area that has been expounded by Aaron Beck as much as anyone else who has obviously developed the field of cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive distortions are sort of distorted ways of thinking about what may be a usual event. Perhaps a good way of explaining this would be that an older person may be at home on Sunday afternoon expecting a call from her son. The son does not call. She immediately begins to think that the son no longer cares about her, that he is angry with her, etc. And then that, in turn, forms a type of cycle into significant feeling of depression that may go on for a few days. What she finds out maybe the next day or four days later is that the son was tied up in a very busy situation. He did not have time to call his mother until he was it was well beyond her bedtime. He was busy the next day and so he calls her on Tuesday. And so a distortion is actually an event that if you think about it realistically, you can imagine many different reasons that the son did not call. But the older person who may have some propensity toward depression will distort the event into something that directly relates on her self-esteem in this case, and that in turn can lead to a sense of depression and a sense of abandonment. You use the word a sense of depression because as I'm listening to you, what jumps at me is that perhaps this is a situation that does not need a an antidepressant medication, but perhaps more psychotherapy or some sort of cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's exactly right. And of course, we need good clinicians to make those distinctions. But there's good evidence in late life that the cognitive behavioral therapies, such as we've described the ones that by Aaron Begg, but there are others as well, such as interpersonal therapy, actually work quite well in late life. You also, and and I do applaud you for this because I think the fact that you even put this into printed form and considered it, you talked about the protective factors, and one of the protective factors that you talked about is wisdom. This is something that 
we don't measure particularly well, and because we don't measure it well, we don't think about it that often. Older people, short of having major cognitive problems, have an accumulation of life experiences. And we believe that that accumulation of experiences leads to, in many cases, a more facile ability to deal with the challenges that the older person faces. In other words, the older person just sees things in a somewhat larger context. And given that ability, and also probably given a kind of paradoxical flexibility that often comes in later life, where people are willing to ask questions that perhaps they were not as willing to ask earlier in life, we feel those types of characteristics that we often include in the umbrella term of wisdom, in fact, could very well be protective against developing depression. For example, we live in a a tough world today. It would be easy to read the news and just get uh, overly depressed. I don't care what your age is. Older people have been through a lot. Many today went through the Second World War. They may have remembered experiences from the Great Economic Depression, which was far more severe than the economic recession that we're going through now. And so they can put experiences like that in some context and say, yes, things are bad, but my experience has suggested A, B, C, D, and therefore they have an ability to sort of ride out experiences like that. The same can be true for families. Older people face sometimes many significant uh, challenges, economic challenges, etc., but they've been through challenges like that before, and they've learned how to deal with challenges. And that type of wisdom often buffers, we think, the likelihood that a person may develop a depression in late life. And I think it's great calling it a protective factor. I think that in a good workup, a good clinician should be able to list the protective factors that a patient has working for them versus those that are absent. Uh, Well said. I think that what I often like to consider is that any patient who walks into my office I want to not only look at the potential vulnerabilities that patient has because I'm there to try to help that patient ride through those vulnerabilities and the particular suffering that I happen to witness. But in addition, I'm looking for strengths. I'm looking for allies because I know I alone, whether it's through medication or through talking with the patient, am not going to be able to treat this depression fully. And therefore, I need help. And I look for help in terms of the strengths of the older person, personality strengths, the 